you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open to the epistle of 1 John. We're looking at one verse today, chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13. And if you are able, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Pray with me, please. Lord, this is your word. It is not man's best effort on paper. Rather, it is the inspired and errant word of the living God. We acknowledge that as we approach it. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Lord, please, be in with this word in our hearts and our minds. Open our ears and clog our ears to hear the things that we need to hear from you today. May our hearts and minds be ready to receive it. God, we're talking about assurance of salvation today. So I pray, first of all, if there's someone here who's not saved, may they come to know Jesus today. May they hear the gospel. And if there's Christians here today struggling with assurance of their salvation, Lord, I pray that you would minister to them to the preaching of thy word. Holy Spirit, work in their hearts to affirm their faith in Jesus. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Thinking back to my high school days, I think one of the hardest classes I took in high school was my ninth grade English class. My teacher's name was Mrs. Collison. By this point, you kind of know I'm a math science guy, so English was a challenge for me. So when I got to this freshman English class in, in ninth grade, and Mrs. Collison, I didn't know what to do, because it was very challenging. Um, and we were learning how to write that year. And I remember she was introducing us to the five-paragraph essay. Writing was a challenge for me, so as she was teaching this, it was hard for me to to kind of get what she was talking about. But then she had a lecture one day on what's called the thesis statement. She said, in your opening paragraph, you need to give me a thesis statement. I said, what is that? She goes, give me a statement of clarity and purpose. I want to know why you are writing what you're getting ready to say. Where are you going? What, what are you doing? What's your goal? In other words, what is your clear thesis statement? What is your purpose for writing this book? And once she explained it that way, I kind of called on. Oh, I, I get this. This is You're asking me for clarity from where I'm going. I can give you that. And that helped me understand what I need to do in the rest of my paper once I had my thesis statement. Now, I mentioned that to you today because as we read John, as we read the writings of John, not only this epistle today, but even the Gospel of John, we find that John stops many times in his book and gives us a clear thesis statement. He gives us the purpose, the reason that he's writing. In fact, we find this, first of all, in the Gospel of John. I want to put up, this is John 20, 31. So this is towards the end of the Gospel. John gives us his thesis statement for the Gospel. Here's what he says. But these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John is saying in the gospel is that this book was primarily written to those who were unbelievers. That they might read the account of Jesus Christ. And that they, by reading that, that God would stir within their hearts and His Holy Spirit would open their minds so that they would believe upon Jesus Christ to be saved. Written for people who didn't know Him, but John hopes that they would come to know Him. That was the purpose of the Gospel of John. Now in the same way, in the same fashion, in John's first epistle, the book we're in today, he also gives us a thesis statement. And it's the verse that we're looking at today, John 5.13. If you look back in that verse in your Bibles, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the difference between the Gospel of John and 1 John is this. The Gospel of John was written primarily to unbelievers that they would come to know Jesus. But 1 John was written to believers. He's writing to you who have already believed in order that you may know with certainty that you have eternal life. That's his thesis statement. That's his purpose for us as believers to have assurance of our salvation. So, beloved, today we are talking about assurance of salvation, knowing for certain that you are saved. And then you see the phrase at the end of 513, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not think you have eternal life, but hope or wish you have eternal life. But the Bible says to all of us today, right now we can know that we have eternal life. As we move forward this morning, this sermon breaks down into four parts dealing with assurance. And we'll walk through these four parts together. Here they are. The first thing we're going to talk about is the faith of assurance. Secondly, what's the basis of assurance? Thirdly, the qualities of assurance. And then finally, the eternal life of assurance. So the faith, the basis, the qualities, and eternal life of assurance. Let's look at that first point, the faith of assurance. Here's what the text says, 5.13. And before I go any further, let me just pause and say this. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. If I look back at Scripture in 1 John, I'm not going to have it on the screen. I'm going to keep you in 1 John since your Bibles are open to 1 John. If I go outside of 1 John... I want to put it on the screen so you don't have to constantly be turning through this sermon today. But we are going to look at a lot of Scripture. But going back to 5.13, here's what John says about the faith of assurance. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, as I read that passage, you didn't hear the word faith. But there's something going on in Greek that you might not know. In Greek, the word faith and belief are the same word. So to believe is to have faith in. To have faith in is to believe. Well, what is faith? What is true saving faith in Jesus Christ? We could open up the shorter catechism. We could read that faith is receiving and resting 
upon Christ alone for salvation. But as I've studied faith over the years, I found an illustration that I'd like to share with you today. This illustration doesn't originate with me. It comes from Dr. D.J. Kennedy, who is PCA pastor down in Fort Lauderdale. He's with the Lord now. But this was his illustration on faith. You see the two chairs here? Let's talk about these two chairs. Now, I'm going to sit down in this chair. This is going to be my chair right here. But I really don't want you to focus on this chair right here. I want you to focus on that. Let's look at this chair. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that that chair exists? You think so? Does it exist? I believe it exists as well. Do you believe that chair would hold you up if you sat in it? Yes. Yeah, thank you so much for this one. <laughs> Do you believe it would hold me up? No, I'm kind, but I'm a big guy. <laughs> You're laughing. Nothing. I believe it would hold me up. I think you believe it would probably hold me up. Let, let's talk about this chair. What, what, do you, what do you see about this chair that, that makes you think it would hold you up or hold me up? Well, it's made of metal on the bottom, and that metal's not bending or out of whack. It, it, it looks sturdy, doesn't it? It looks like it would support your weight, my weight, it's got a nice back on it. It's not going to let us just flop over. Yes, there's a lot of nice things about this chair, right? We believe it's there. We believe it exists. We believe nice things about it. We believe it would hold us up. But I have a question for you about this chair over here. Right now, am I putting my faith in that chair? Right now? I'm not, am I? What chair am I putting my faith in? This chair. Why? Because I'm sitting and resting in this chair, right? I'm not sitting and resting in that chair. If I want to put faith in that chair, what do I got to do? I got to get up. <laughs> I got to come over here, right? I got to sit. Here's the moment. <laughs> I got to sit and rest in this chair. Now that I'm sitting, I'm resting in this chair. Now I'm putting faith in this chair. Beloved, it's the same thing with God. Think about this. So many people in life, they're sitting in their own chair, and they look over at God and say, you know what, I believe there's a God. I do. I believe that God exists. They'll even say, I believe really nice things about God. He's good. He's great. He's sovereign. He created all things. I believe that God is love, that He can sustain some things, that, that He's strong enough to sustain things. But they stop right there. Yet they think that believing God exists and believing nice things about God is saving faith. But the Bible says it's not. In fact, the Bible says that demons believe in God. James says demons believe and tremble at the fact that there's a God. And they don't have saving faith. You see, saving faith is just not believing there's a God. It's not just believing nice things about God. You're just saying, you know what? I'm going to stop trusting my chair. I'm going to stop trusting myself. 
And I am going to, with my whole heart, with my whole life, receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. It's a transfer of trust. You see, I was trusting this chair when I said it. And until I sit down in this chair, I'm not trusting you. And beloved, if you have it with your whole heart, with your whole mind, received and rested upon Christ alone for salvation, you don't yet have saving faith. You see, the Bible's not asking you if you believe there's a God or if you believe that God is good or great and all those nice things. We can say that about the chair. But until you receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, you do not have saving faith. You see, this verse says that John is writing to those who have believed, to those who have transferred their trust in themselves to Jesus. So the first question for you today, if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, is man, have you believed? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Or do you just think nice things about God? Because that's not saving faith. That's the faith of assurance. Secondly, this morning, we look at the basis of assurance. You know, as we read and study the Bible, we find that Scripture teaches us that there's three main things that give us a solid basis for assurance. Let's talk about those three. The first is this, the infallible certainty of what the Bible says. Sounds profound, doesn't it? The infallible certainty of what the Bible says. See, this takes us all back to our doctrine of Scripture. We're going to put this verse on the screen. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16. Because when we talk about Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture, we need to be reminded what the Scripture says about itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God, says Paul, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We've talked a lot as we study 1 John about what you feel and what you know. And sometimes we put our misinformed feelings above what we know. And by what we know, I mean Scripture, what God says about something. You see, when it comes to assurance of salvation, the Bible doesn't say just trust the latest feeling that you have. It says look at what God says about assurance. Look at what God says about your situation because Scripture speaks to our feelings. It should inform our feelings because our faith, which is based on Scripture, needs to be fed by Scripture. When we feed our faith with Scripture, we're feeding it with the authority, with the certainty of what God says. What's more trustworthy, the way you feel or what God says? What can be a higher in authority than what God says? So we need to rely on that infallible certainty of what God said. So let's look at it. We have another scripture we're going to put up. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this a little bit back in December. I want to repeat it today because it involves what the Bible says about assurance. It says this. This is Jesus speaking in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. Jesus says that he knows his sheep, his flock, his church. And then, as part of that church, you're in his mighty grip, his hand. And he will never let you get. From time to time, I'll do this game with children. I'll maybe take a little piece of paper and cuff it up, and I'll put it in my hand, and I'll squeeze my fist real tight, and I'll get the kids, hey, see if you can pull my fingers apart to get that piece of paper. And of course, they try and they pull, and it's hard for them, and it's struggling for them. And I tell them, hey, if you think it's that hard to get that piece of paper out of my hand, look at this passage. Well, the passage up there. Look at that passage and say, how hard is it to get something out of God's hand? Do you remember the story, if you were here back in December, I told this story. I was at the Apple Festival over in Lincolnton, and I had Rock in this hand, and Macy in this hand. They were seven and five, I think. And we were walking down the sidewalk, and there were all these cars going by. There was a lot of traffic. And I had a good grip on their hands, because as, as children, they might let go of mine, and they might dart into the road. But as their father, I knew that about them. And I had a grip on their hand, not too tight, but if they tried to release, it would get a lot tighter. Why? Because I love my children. You see, there was a better chance that day that my arm would fall off my shoulder than my hand would let go of their hands. Why? Because I'm their dad. They're my kids. I love them. And no matter what, I'm not going to let them go. And neither would you. You wouldn't let go of your kids. And if we have that much of a grip on our children, beloved, how much greater and stronger is the grip of our Heavenly Father upon His children? You see, our assurance rests on God holding on to us. That's what the Bible says. So let your faith, which is based on Scripture, be fed by the Scripture so that you indeed might have a solid basis of assurance of salvation. Know these scriptures, because even in this one epistle in 1 John, John has said some, some statements about certainty. In the third chapter, he says all three of these statements. He says, I know that we are children of God. I know that when He appears, we will be like Him. I know that we have passed from death to life. He has certainty. Paul in Colossians says, I know I have the forgiveness of sins. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I know when I'm absent from the body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. In Romans 8, he says, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. You see, the problem for many people in the church today is that the church has gotten away from teaching the Bible. We have pastors now who stand up and they'll say anything, but they won't open the Bible and equip their flock. And when Christians don't hear the Bible, their lives become dreary, dark, and a foreboding place. And without Scripture, you will lose your blessed assurance. So what do we need to do? We need to know the Bible, and once we know it, we need to take God at His word. For to deny the truth of the Bible is one of the most egregious and blasphemous things we could ever do. If we, if we, did, if we deny what God is clearly telling us in Scripture, that is one of the most egregious things we can do. Because the Bible teaches us our basis of joy, of peace, 
And today it teaches you the basis of assurance of salvation. You see, one of the bases is the scripture itself. A second basis is this. The evidence of God's grace is in your life. As we preach this book of 1 John, and some of you can come up here and do what I'm getting ready to do right now because you've been here for, for most of it. But we've talked about the fact that John has three tests in this book. Three tests of knowing Jesus. The first one is the love test. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? The second one is the moral test. Do you desire to obey God and follow after His will? The third one is the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? And John says, you need to take those tests because, as he says it in this book, if you talk the talk, you're going to walk the walk. As James says, your faith will be evidenced by the works in your life. You're going to show forth fruit that you know Jesus. And that fruit is going to be seen in loving others and obeying God. As First John taught us a couple weeks ago, his commandments should not be burdensome to believers. And do you have that proper understanding of who Jesus is? So, is there evidence in your life that shows forth that you really know Jesus? Years ago, when I was a teenager, there was a poster hung up in my big Baptist church. And the poster said this, it says, if someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to back that up? And that's what John is saying. If there's a root of Christianity in your life, then there will be fruit of Christianity in your life. So there's evidences of God's graces in your life. The third basis is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to put up Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. This is what God says about His Holy Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Paul calls our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, the Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And see, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's relational. And this text says that He actually communicates to our own spirit that we indeed are the children of God. That God bears witness of Himself to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So that within our hearts, we have this cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, you are indeed my God, my Father. I am your Son. And the Bible teaches us that that is an objective testimony, an objective witness by God. The basis of our assurance should rest on So from the infallibility of the Word, from the graces, the evidence in our lives to the Holy Spirit, Beloved, these are the basis. This is the basis of assurance. Thirdly today, the qualities of assurance. Because we, 
as we look at people in the Bible, we see biblical examples of people who have real assurance and false assurance. True assurance and false assurance. Let's look at one of those examples right now of the qualities of that person that has true assurance. This is Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. You know this as the parable of the tax collector. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and just, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Looking at this passage, we ask, what is the quality of true assurance? What is the quality of false assurance? We can look at this passage and say the one who has true assurance is one who has humility. The one who has false assurance is the one who has pride. In this passage, Jesus talked about the Pharisees saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Look at me. I thank you that I've done this and I've done that. And welling up within his heart was a spirit of pride pointing to himself. Get this tax collector. And don't you, I mean, Jesus does this on purpose, picking, picking the tax collector, picking someone who society doesn't like. This tax collector is broken before God, asking God for mercy, throwing himself before the Lord with all humility. He's the one, the Bible says, that was justified. He's the one that had true assurance. So a quality, beloved, that would permeate from one who has true assurance is humility and not pride. Secondly, we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. By the way, I think this is one of the most gripping passages in all of Scripture, particularly for believers to examine. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As we look at this passage, you have a group of people who had a false assurance. They were so sure they had a seat at Christ's table. They were so sure that they knew they were going to heaven. And 
with that in their heart and their mind, they said, Lord, look at what we've done. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do all these mighty works? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So we see from this passage that the person who has false assurance is the person that says, look at me. He says, let me show you what I've done for God. But the Bible teaches us that that's not the quality of someone who has assurance. If you'll open 1 John, you're in it. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. We see the Apostle John write, one who has true assurance of his salvation. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John doesn't say, hey, Lord, haven't I done this and haven't I done that? He says, God, you sent your only Son to this world to die on the cross for my sins that I might have life. Let me talk about what you've done. False assurance looks to self. True assurance looks only to Christ. Beloved, these are the qualities of assurance from the Bible. But then finally, our last point today, the eternal life of assurance. We've looked at the faith of assurance, the basis of assurance, the qualities of assurance. Let us now look at eternal life. Look at our verse one more time because in three, in chapter 5, 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. You see, the promise that God wants to give you is the fact that you're going to spend eternity with Him. And the Bible says, it doesn't say that that eternal life starts when you die. It says it starts right here, right now, when you believe. Because Jesus said, I came to give you life more abundantly right now. That to have eternal life is to know me. Paul picks this up in his writings. He actually says in Colossians that spiritually, right now, we as believers are already raised with Christ. In Ephesians, he goes one step further. He says, spiritually, we have been seated in the heavenly realms with Christ right now. Think about that. That's part of our eternal life. But then the Bible says there's going to come that moment when we die. And the Bible says that we as believers will be ushered into glory forever to be with the Lord. Yes, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Jesus said it this way. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be that where I am, you may be also. 
You see, God has promised if He started a good work in you, He will complete it. But that binding grip that has wrapped around us as believers is not going to leave us at the point when we die. But God is going to usher us into the presence of Himself. God is going to dwell with us because He will be our God and we will be His people. That's the Old Testament promise. And the Bible describes heaven as a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. That Jesus himself will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. And that binding grip of God will usher us into the presence of God. It will carry us to the shadow of the valley of death and take us all the way to glory. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're not going to lose anybody. If you're in the divine grip of God, you can't be lost. You can't ever be let go. Because God will bring you all the way to eternal life. Indeed, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, as we close today, every one of us look back and examine. First of all, do we have the faith of assurance? Where are you sitting? So many people are sitting right here. And they think this is Christianity. I believe there's a God. I believe nice things about God. But they have never received and trusted Him. If you're here today, you're sitting in this chair, you can trust Him right now. Go to Him in prayer, confessing your sin to Him. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can receive and rest once for all, put this to rest. You can know that you're His by believing upon Christ Jesus, your Lord. Do you have the faith of assurance? Secondly, do you have the basis of assurance? The Scripture part of your life? Do you have the infallible assurance of Scripture supporting everything that you believe? Is there evidence of God's graces in your life? Is the Holy Spirit confirming in your heart that you belong to Him? Do you have the qualities of assurance? Humility versus pride. Pointing to self or pointing to Jesus. Which one is it? Can you walk out of here knowing the eternal life of assurance? It's not something you've got to wait on. It's something that starts right now in knowing Christ. And you can know that He who began to work in you will be faithful to complete it. That bonding grip of Jesus will hold on to you through the valley of death and present you glorious before God. I want you to have blessed assurance. It's by prayer that you have blessed assurance. If you're here today and you're struggling with that or you'd like to talk with someone about that, come see me. Come see Daryl today. We'd love to talk with you about this. We want to settle in your heart and in your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the thesis statement that you thought it's so important for us as believers that you wrote, you had John write an entire book with the sole purpose of assurance. 
And we recognize that so many of us struggle with that one thing. And I pray, Father, that you would bring peace to hearts today through the work of the gospel. That if someone here does not believe, that they would believe. That if someone here does not need your word and be unsupported by Scripture, that it would give you the word. Bring assurance and peace to our hearts and our minds today, we pray. And if there's one here who doesn't know you, they come today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.